Maybe it's just where I'm sitting, but your singing sounds great today. Probably just because I'm sitting in front of Chad, though. Um, <laughs> this week, um, you probably saw the video of that explosion in Beirut. I'm old enough to um, immediately connect the name Beirut with the killing of those 241 American servicemen, uh, as well as 58 French soldiers and also some civilians, when a couple of suicide bombers attacked their barracks in the early 1980s. You might remember that. It was part of the Lebanon war that was raging at the time. It really was between Israel and the PLO. But as is typical of the Middle Eastern world in particular, there were many other complications and factors as well. But if you saw that video of that incredible explosion in Beirut this week, you may have immediately jumped to the conclusion that war was breaking out or that an act of terrorism had been carried out. Israeli and Lebanese officials had to repeatedly deny, especially in those early hours after that, they had to repeatedly deny that Israel had anything to do with the explosion. And part of the reason for this was because throughout social media, people were implying that they were experts at explosive engineering. They took one look at the explosion and said, that's a mushroom cloud, therefore, that's a nuclear bomb. But this is part of the way the world now, everybody, seems to be. Everybody seems to be an expert on everything. And so I've said over the past four or five months in particular, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an expert at infectious diseases. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an expert in, on how society affects groups of people and how different people view and affect society. This week I was also able to add to the list, add to my resume, that I am also not an explosives engineer. When I watched that video initially, I had no idea what was the cause of the explosion, even though just the mere fact that it happened in Beirut made me jump to certain conclusions. I will add that I have watched my sons use powdered coffee creamer as explosive device, albeit a slightly smaller explosion than what I saw in the news this week. So I can fully believe that ammonium nitrate could explode like that. But let's keep going with the things that have affected us these past few months. I'm not an expert on constitutional law, so I can tell you, I don't know whether the orders and the mandates that have been issued all across our nation are legal under the United States Constitution. Frankly, that's for others to figure out. That's not to say I don't have opinions about all of these things. We've all had to look at the evidence presented to us and make judgment calls. We've had to choose what we will do and what we will believe based on the facts or maybe the alleged facts that we have seen. But, and here's where I'm going with this, what do you do with someone who is an expert and yet chooses to disregard the standards of their profession? So what do you do with a lawyer, for example, who overlooks the law and comes to his own conclusions? What do you 
with a judge who disregards all eyewitness testimony, even the evidence that he has seen with his own eyes in order to come to his own foregone conclusions. What do you do with a student who turns his back on his own teacher? A disciple who denies his own master? I'm guessing you can see where we are going with this. These are the things that we're going to see here in today's passage in the gospel according to John. Um, before I read this, we're, going to, we're in John chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 12. We're going to start looking at verses 12 through 27. We won't finish it today. Um, but I want to point out that there, there really are four scenes here. We're just going to look at the first two this week. We'll look at the second two next week. And really, there are, there's actually just two scenes, and it keeps switching back and forth. The setting goes from inside to outside, back inside, and one more time outside. The reason for this is that John is focusing his attention on, really on two men, the high priest and Peter. He's focusing his attention on how they interact with the claims of Christ. Or we could almost say that, that John is focused on how uh, these two fulfilled the, go- the calling that God had on their respective lives. So John chapter 18, I- I'm just going to go ahead and read 1 through 27 so that we can remember. I was going to refer back a couple times to the previous verses. So John 18, 1 says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. See, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing, warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And he said, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon, was, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to, them, to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand. I pray that you would feed us from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to sit and read through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you were to read through these books, you would find this Gospel account very different from the other three. John writes very specifically. He purposefully leaves out some major details, and he includes some that, that might appear quite minor, actually, minor details. So, for example, in this passage... He skips over the trial uh, before Caiaphas completely. Yet he mentions twice that Peter was standing and warming himself by the fire. In fact, that phrase, standing and warming, um, is used three times at least. So when John writes, he, he records specific miracles for a specific purpose as well. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the miracles and the signs that Jesus does are not John's focus. His claims, his teaching, Jesus' glory is his focus, especially in the second half of the book. So even as we read these verses, compared to the others, there's much that is left out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are much more detailed, but there's a point to John's account, to how he writes this. There's a reason that he specifically wrote it this way. He wants us to notice some specific details. He wants us to understand that this is a cosmic battle. This is not just a battle of sort of generic good versus evil. This is a battle for the glory of God. This is a battle for the soul's of men. I said last week that it should be clear to us that Jesus is orchestrating these events. Christ is in charge. He lays down his life of his own accord. No one takes it from him, he has said. And as they bind him, the prophecy, for example, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 begins to come to pass. He is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Right here in verse 12. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, Isaiah 53 says. We can see these things beginning to unfold. And as this unfolds, keep your eyes on Peter. 
John's actually directing us to look at Peter. He keeps going back to him. In fact, all of the gospel writers do this, probably because Peter is essentially their spokesman. He's really become their leader in many ways, and we know that that will continue. He will continue to be the leader of the disciples, the apostles, as, as the book of Acts unfolds. And I think that this is strategic. See, John has reminded us of Judas several times in the previous passage, right? He wanted us to see Judas. We saw last week that he does this because Judas stands in that scene in the place of Satan. He was the accuser betraying the Christ. But who is Peter? Peter is a disciple of Christ. Peter had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to that confession by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter stands as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is a cosmic battle. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34, Luke tells us that, that earlier in the evening, before his arrest, Jesus had said this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Satan has targeted Jesus' disciples, namely their leaders, both Peter and Judas. Or Jesus. He's already won over Judas. Now he's targeting Jesus as their uh, master, and he's targeting Peter as sort of the leader of the disciples. There's a verse in the Gospel of Mark, um, it's Mark 3.27, in which Jesus is talking about Satan, and, and he says this. So Jesus is talking, he's talking about Satan. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So again, Jesus is talking about Satan there, and it's in a larger conversation. But here, Satan, the deceiver, he's trying to preempt the binding. He's using this binding, Jesus' binding here, as an attempt to exert control over Christ and therefore over his disciples. And he's going for the weakest link who will cause the most damage, Peter, their leader. But ultimately, we know two things. We know two things about the binding. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Satan's not doing this to Jesus. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, we read this prophecy. 
John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. But as I said, the deceiver is trying to destroy the credibility of the Christ in the minds of the disciples and really any who might come after them. Any who might be tempted to believe Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we know who will be bound in the end. The father of lies is working in this passage, all through this passage. And as the story continues, one of the things that we can see here is really a a worldly plot. So let's look at the worldly plot in verses 12, 13, and 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now throughout this, throughout all of this, there is political maneuvering and scheming. And it begins right at the beginning. This man... Annas here. Um, He had been high priest during Jesus' childhood, really from from the year 6, A.D. 6, to the year 15. And in that year, he was removed by the Romans. But for the next several years, Annas um, was able to, to have various members of his family hold the office of high priest, including now his son in law, Caiaphas. And with all of the political unrest between the Jews and the Romans, it should be pretty easy for us to understand that that many Jews would have seen Annas as the real high priest, since, generally speaking, the the high priest was high priest for life. That's typically how it would work. There were a few times when it didn't work that way, but that's typically how it would work in Jewish um, tradition. And so they bring Jesus bound to Annas, who is very clearly an influential man with the Jews, especially the religious leadership. And unfortunately, this is not strictly legal. But John is purposefully drawing a connection between Annas and the legal high priest, Caiaphas. And thereby he is implicating both of them. But not only is he drawing that connection, in fact, if you read through these verses here, especially 19 to 24, and we'll get at this more next week, it's kind of unclear who the high priest is. It goes back and forth between these two guys. He's drawing this connection, but he's also intentionally, John is intentionally blurring the line between these two men. And so sometimes he's not clear about which high priest he's talking about. But I want you to hold on to that thought. We'll have to come back to that later. Because we also need to see here that John wants us to remember that this plot has been in the works for a while now. So again, verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is a callback to chapter 11, verses 45 to 53, which itself is a direct result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This plan, this plan to put Jesus to death in order to stamp out the the spread of what would become known as Christianity has its roots with this man, Caiaphas. 
Turn back to chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 45. I want you to, I want you to hear this plan. Just read this one paragraph. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that is, raised Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So consider all of this for a moment. The high priest of the people of God, the man whose job it was, was to go before the Lord on behalf of the people. His job, we've just in John chapter 17, we've read through what we often call Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is Caiaphas's job, to go before the Lord and intercede before the Lord on behalf of the people, to intercede for them and to bring a sacrifice and an atonement for their sins. The high priest, Caiaphas, used his position of authority to direct the strategy of the Jewish leadership in the killing of Jesus. But not only is he guilty of this, remember all of this is a, is a cosmic battle between God and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have to ask the question, whose side is he on? Yet what Caiaphas intends for evil God intends for good. It's right there in John 11. At the end of that, it says he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He had no idea what he was saying. But God was using Caiaphas' words and his actions which were in direct opposition to Jesus Christ. He was using his words and his actions to gather into one God's people. God is going to use this worldly plot to bring salvation to the world, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember, he came to his own, John says, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because of this worldly plot, because Caiaphas came up with this idea and he, and he oversaw its execution, because of that, salvation was opened up for you. Because of Caiaphas' evil here, God used this to open up salvation for us. One of the things that we need to understand when we think about God's plan of salvation is that it's not plan B or plan C. When Adam sinned and brought sin and death into the world, 
God was not taken by surprise. When the Jews rejected their Messiah and they crucified him, God didn't have to come up with another plan to call his people to himself. This was his plan. And God, in his grace, used all of these events to secure our salvation, to call a people for his own possession, to call us to himself. A couple of months after this trial, Peter will preach a sermon on this. And this is what he says. It's in Acts chapter 2, verses, it's a much of Acts chapter 2, but I'm going to read just three verses, 22, 23, and 24. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. And then speaking just a little bit later, uh, he says this in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And do you know who that everyone is? It's Jeremy and Megan. You know who else that everyone is? It's Ezra and Maddie and Charles. It's each of us who have eaten of the bread and drink of the cup in a worthy manner. That everyone is all who have believed and trusted in the promise trusted in a new covenant in his blood. It's each of us for whom Christ died. Everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But before Peter boldly proclaimed those words, again, a month and a half or so after this, maybe two months after these events, before he boldly proclaimed those words, he sheepishly said a few other words. And he said them because of his fear of man. Pick it up in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So did the other disciple who was known to the high priest. He went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. John doesn't typically name himself in his own um, gospel, but he's clearly providing us with eyewitness details. And we also believe that a little bit later in the next couple of chapters, he's going to be present at the cross. Um, And so it's safe to assume that John here is this other disciple. How he is known to the high priest is a matter of debate, but regardless, what we can see here is that this scene is filled with tension. Jesus has just been taken into custody. He has been bound. He has been brought before a secret late-night hearing. John, somehow known to the high priest, was able to enter into the courtyard, but Peter wasn't able to until John vouched for him. So at this point, put yourself in Peter's shoes. He's declared a willingness to fight and die. Not just with his words, but he has declared that willingness to fight and die even with his actions. He drew his sword. He swung that sword. He was ready. But even, he even brought that sword with him, even in the face of overwhelming force. But Jesus stopped him. He had to have been a little more, uh, more than just simply confused. I think he also might have been humiliated in his pride. And now, a servant girl is standing between him and his Lord. One that apparently recognizes John as being one of Jesus' disciples. She, she apparently knew him. He was at least known to the high priest. And she says this to Peter. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? We, we need to see Peter's humiliation in this. Although his humiliation is nothing compared to the Lord's. But when confronted by her question... Peter lies. I am not. In fact, he says the very opposite response. He has the very opposite response that Jesus had had a few verses earlier. Whom do you speak? Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' response was what? I am he. You're not also one of his disciples, are you? I'm not. Maybe he thought this was expected. Maybe he thought it was necessary for admittance. Maybe he justified it in his own mind as just a little white lie to a, to a servant girl. After all, who's going to know? Who's going to care? Maybe he was embarrassed. He was already humiliated. Probably he was afraid. Jesus had said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Unfortunately, he was afraid of the wrong thing. Instead of fearing God, Peter feared the question of this young girl guarding the gate. Now, hear me very carefully here. He's, I don't think he's afraid of her. I think he's clearly not afraid of conflict. He's just had his sword out. At least he's not afraid of conflict when he knows that the Lord is on his side. So what's he afraid of? Well, it's possible that he's afraid of being arrested at this point because he knows that, he knows that Jesus isn't going to fight with him. He knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
He knows that Jesus has at his disposal a multitude of the heavenly host, angel armies. He knows that if God is for him, who can be against him? But he's also figured out that it's pretty unlikely that God is going to summon those angel armies to fight for him because Jesus just put him to, told him to put his sword in its sheath. Put your sword away because Jesus is the one who is about to drink of the cup of the wrath of God. But because Peter is human and because in a way he represents all of Christ's disciples here, really I think including us, I think he's afraid that he's going to be humiliated again. I think he's afraid that his pride will be hurt if this young girl says to him, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come in. But again, put yourself in Peter's shoes. When the shepherd was struck, he didn't scatter with the others. I will fight and I will die for you, Peter had said. He was even given access to the high priest. You could see how this could puff up his pride. Maybe I'm putting a little bit too much of myself in this. But I know my own pride, and I know how I would feel at this point. Now, yeah, I don't, I don't know him. I'm going in there. I don't know him. How about you? You realize that there's a difference between being humbled by God and being humiliated by him, right? The difference is often in us, though. It's, it's not really in him. We're humbled when we submit to God's will, and we're humiliated when we don't. And in the battle of the wills, guess who wins? Peter has been given access Not just to the high priest's courtyard here. Peter's been given access to the true high priest. Yet he acts like an outsider. Look look at verse 18. The servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them, was with them standing and warming himself. That's that's not a casual verse, that's not accidental information. These are the opponents of Jesus. These are his enemies. These were those who had just arrested Jesus, and at least some of them will be involved in the beatings and the mockery and and ultimately in his crucifixion. These are the servants and the officers, and they are warming themselves by the fire, and Peter is right there with them. This image The way that this is worded, the repetition, it it is meant to express their communion their fellowship, and even the intimacy. He's one of them. But this is an ironic fellowship at best, especially because he's just attacked one of them. Suddenly in the storyline, though, Peter is accepted by the world. He denies Christ and is accepted by the world. And Peter accepts them apparently. When he said, I am not, to the girl at the gate, he was accepted into the fold and given a nice warm spot by the fire. And that's how it happens. Fear of man sets in and we capitulate. And the next thing we know, instead of hating us because it first hated him, the world embraces us as one of its own. 
Step right up here next to the fire. It's warm and comfortable. And all the while, Peter's Lord is inside being treated as an outsider, being abused. Now I want you to see something else. Turn over to Psalm 1. And as I read this, it's a brief psalm. I've read it before. You're probably familiar with it. As I read this, I want you to ask yourself, which one is Jesus and which one is Peter? Think of Peter and Jesus as I read this. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Do you know which one is Jesus and which one is Peter? Peter is standing with sinners, warming himself by the fire. However, as imperfect of a disciple that Peter was, Jesus, the man who is righteous, the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor sits, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Jesus, who is inside, bound like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it best. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is inside, preparing to do the work necessary to give his righteousness to Peter to impute his righteousness on all who would trust in him for salvation. So that the man of Psalm 1, the man who is blessed, so that that man might be us through him. Peter messed up. He denied Christ and the world embraced him. It was a, it was a quick, easy denial. And the world said, come stand by this nice warm fire. And all the while, Jesus is inside preparing to give him his righteousness. Romans chapter 6, really the end of chapter 5. It says this. Let me read verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We almost scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For Peter standing out next to the fire with the world. Jump down to verse 18. Romans 5, 18 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to Condemnation for all men, that is Adam's sin. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't stay by the fire is what he's saying to Peter. We're going to see that as John unfolds. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In just a second, Jeremy and Megan are going to come and get in the baptistry, hot tub baptistry. And an inflatable pool doesn't matter. Because what they're doing is showing the world that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have confessed with their mouths and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They have trusted in Christ. And so they are, as Romans 6 says, buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, they too might walk in newness of life. This is a new life, a life in Christ. Christ.